Everybody survived this weekend's blizzard? It's just kind of like this every, what, six, seven day thing that um, happens in uh, northeast Washington in March of all times. Um, David uh, just came and reminded me that there are the announcement that he gave for the upcoming informational meeting on Young Life, the meeting there in Chewila, there are these flyers in the back. Uh, so feel free to take one, take a bunch, hand them out in town, kids, hand them out in school, uh, talk to your parents. But uh, uh, what we would like is we would like that whole stack right back there on that back table uh, to disappear by the time the doors are locked. How's that sound? Right? So don't feel bashful about taking them and handing them out. In fact, I'll just hand one out to some random kid that I know. Here you go, Silas. <laughs> Another thing before we get going, uh, a little birdie told me this morning that a couple's going to be celebrating their 18th anniversary this week. Happy anniversary to Jason and Delane. And Jason and Diana Delane, excuse me. And uh, they got a lot to celebrate this week. You turned 50. Welcome to the club. I told everybody when I turned 50, Jason, that uh, they said, oh, you're the top of the hill. I said, good, I'm going to cut the brake lines from here on out. And uh, you turned 14, huh? Oh, 13. Far be it from me to be presumptuous on your age. But happy birthday to you, too, and happy anniversary. Definitely want to celebrate with you guys. And uh, we've been um, preaching through and looking at and studying through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you're new, if you're new, we want to make sure that, that uh, you uh, feel welcome, that you are welcomed, and that you get caught up uh, as much as possible. And so I always do just a little bit of a recap. We're almost halfway through the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 7. And uh, just a little FYI, you can go onto our website and listen to past sermons if uh, you so choose, if you'd like to kind of get caught up and wonder, man, what's all the background for what this guy's talking about? Uh, they're all there. We've got a great uh, team that does all of that. Michaela stays real busy making sure that uh, my voice gets on the Internet. I'm not sure why, but it's part of her job here around here. Anyway, we looked last week at the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, where Jesus' disciples come under this scrutiny and under this criticism uh, for the simple fact that they weren't going through all the ceremonial hoops to wash their hands before they ate. That's what it really amounted to. Uh, the Word says that a group of Pharisees came down from Jerusalem. If you don't know who the Pharisees are, they're the kind of the stuffy religious leaders of Israel. And they really came down to find some sort of fault with Jesus or with his guys. Now, the reason they were trying to do that is they were trying to, they were trying to, their motivation was just to stop. And you can, you can read all this. You can go back, Mark chapter 3, chapter 4, around in there is where it really talks about. But they were trying to stop this upswell ministry that Jesus had started. And Jesus' ministry, and typically in that day, if you had kind of an upstart ministry, everything kind of funneled in and out of Jerusalem as far as any kind of a, a, a religious a teaching and all of that. But Jesus was different. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem as a starting point. He started with the people uh, in his area, in the region of Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee, 
and uh, to the northern part of Israel. And these guys come to, essentially, to try to find fault with what Jesus was doing or with his followers, and they kind of hung their hat there in the first half of Mark chapter 7. They kind of hung their hat on the idea that these guys weren't going through all these traditions that they had set up. And Jesus meets them with these words. He calls them hypocrites. Then he gives them a word from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah chapter Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 is where Jesus quotes there. He quotes it there in Mark chapter 7, verses uh, uh, 6 and 7. But Isaiah said it years before. He says, Therefore the Lord said, As in as much as these people draw near me with their mouths, and they honor me with their lips, but they've removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. The principle that we kind of looked out, looked at yesterday, and I kind of combined two parts because really this chapter is divided into two parts, if you will. But the, the whole part of it, and we're going to just, I just wanted to give a little background to say this, is that the first half of that principle is, is that Jesus meets and he deals with people that are hard-hearted. He deals with the critics with confrontation. They would come at him and say, hey, you're breaking the law, or you're not doing this, or not, you're not doing that tradition, or this tradition. And what does he do? He takes them right back to the things that they, that they study with fervency. They, they, they pour over the Old Testament Scriptures. It's all they had. And he takes them to the law of Moses and says, well, hey, wait a minute. What about this? And so he always has this sense of confrontation with people that are hard-hearted. The second half of that equation, though, is he also comforts those that are brokenhearted. He comforts those that are brokenhearted. But with these hard hearts, the reality is, is that lest we stare down our nose at other people, that we all have a struggle with hard hearts. See, we find ourselves in reality, folks, on both sides of the equation throughout our lives. There's times where I've had a real hard heart and God had to confront me. There's times where I've been broken and poured out. There's these, this is true for you guys as well. There's been times where your heart was hard and God just went in there and, man, he just started hammering away on you. And you're like, what is, what is going on? What, what, why, do, why do I get the treatment? That's kind of what we think about in those times. The reality is, is that God wants our hearts soft towards him. He wants our hearts soft towards him. We've all had areas that in our hardness of heart, we don't want to relinquish to God and let Him work at the heart level. That's true of all of us. It's true of all of mankind. It's just a, it's just a universal principle. We all have areas that we don't want to relinquish. We want to say, all right, all right God, you, you can have this part of my life over here. Like, this is the part that's good. You just go ahead and control that part. But these little pockets, these little pieces... You know, I, 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 I got it. I'm good, right? That's, that's, how, that's kind of our mental attitude. It's like, nah, you know, our finances, no, it's okay, God. I'm, I'm pretty good with numbers. Well, it doesn't always pan out real well. We always have these pockets, whatever they are, whatever they are, that we don't surrender and submit to the Lord. And Jesus warns us and his listeners and the Pharisees and with this quote out of Isaiah 29 against hard-heartedness. He kind of calls a spade a spade. And that's what he does when there's hard hearts. 
he calls a spade a spade, and he convicts us, and <clears throat> he convicts us of the sin that is the result of our hard-heartedness. And, he, and, he, and, and, and in that conviction, then, there's the, there's the draw to confess that sin. And so sometimes it takes hard measures to get us to that point where we surrender, where we confess, where we repent. Sometimes it takes brutal measures. Sometimes it's things that we would never, ever, ever think about. It takes us to get to that spot. But the reality is, is that God wants to soften our hearts towards His ways. And this thing that we hold on to, these things that we, that we you know, kind of snuggle up to in life that we think that, no, nah, it's all right, God, I got this part. I'm not going to relinquish this to you. Those are the very things that God goes after to melt us down. He has an amazing ability to soften the hardest person and to bring them out of the slavery of sin. In reality, whatever that thing that's in my pocket or whatever that thing that's, that you know that's in your park, pocket that, that kind of causes your heart to be hard, Ultimately, that's the thing that, we, that we're worshiping. That's the thing that we're relying upon. That's the thing that we're dependent upon. And that's the thing that really has us then enslaved. It has us enslaved. And it's sinful. And Jesus comes to free us then and for, to free them. His message is about that from this prison. He comes to freeze you and I from our own prison of our own making. Today we're going to look at the second half. That's all kind of introductory if you think, oh boy, Mark's coming out of the gate firing <laughs> big shells. That was just the introduction. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a fun ride. Today we're actually going to look at the second half of the equation. The half where Jesus comforts the broken hearts. And the rest of this chapter is, is, is so intriguing to me uh, for a lot of different reasons. And, and actually, some of the, the most intriguing components of it is, is at the very end. So we're going to get there. Let's go ahead and read the whole passage, actually, as we get started. So turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We'll start uh, at verse 24 and read to the end of the chapter. Then we'll go back and take a look at it. Here we go. From there, he, <clears throat> from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children uh, be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this, <clears throat> for this saying, Go your way, the demon is gone out of your daughter. And when, she has come, and when she had come to her house, she found the demon had gone out of her daughter, lying there in the bed. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came to the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue, and then he looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephah, Ephah, 
Ephana, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. We'll stop there for today. Go back and take a look at the first few verses there as we go back to it. And I would invite you to put one finger in Matthew chapter 15. We're actually probably going to spend as much time in Matthew 15 on the first part of this story than we will in Mark chapter 7. And here's the reason why. Matthew fills in the details of this story that Mark doesn't. Uh, essentially, if you can just envision two people watching, a, uh, you know, watching something happen, uh, and you're going to get two perspectives of the same event. And each person is going to write about it probably a little differently, though the event be the same. And that's kind of the connection here between Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15. And Matthew really fills in a lot of blanks then that Mark does not. For example, there in Matthew 15, Matthew's account says that she's a Canaanite woman. Mark says she's a Syrophoenician. Is he, are they talking about the same lady? Yeah, they're talking about the same lady using different terminology. Matthew says she's a Canaanite woman. Why is this important? Why is it a detail that we should pay attention to? It's, why is it critical? And it's critical for several reasons. One, one, Canaanites were outside of the covenant relationship with God. They were Gentiles. They were Gentiles and had been for centuries. Two, she was a Gentile woman approaching a Jewish man. This was absolutely unacceptable in the Jewish culture. There was no, there was no getting around this event somehow making some justification for what was going on from the Jewish perspective. It was unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. Three, if I can turn the page. Three, the typical Greek Gentile that would be suffering from some infirmity would not go to a Jew. They would go in that area of Tyre and Sidon to the temple of Eshman. This temple was in that area of the uh, in the area of Tyre and Sidon, and Gentiles believe that Eshman was the god of healing. And so what's striking about this, why these de details are important, is because <clears throat> who would have thought in that day that she would break all social norms and that he would break all social norms with this situation? It just wasn't thought of. And instead of going to the socially acceptable god, Eshman, she goes to the God that actually produces results despite the cultural taboos. That's a fancy way of saying we're invited to the same God that breaks all the social taboos, that breaks all the social norms, the God that we talk about here every week, the God that's, that's proclaimed here multiple times uh, in different ministries or at your home group or uh, the God that you pray to before you go to bed or, or when you wake up, when you're having your devotions, that's the same God that invited this situation. That's the God that she turns to. She goes to the God that actually produces results. Again, why are these details of this event so necessary? 
Jesus, here's, here's what I want to get to in all of this and the reason why I've kind of built this case is that Jesus had previously been dealing with these self-righteous Pharisees with these hard hearts who were all about appearance and externals, how they looked in public, uh, how good that they thought they were, how good that they appealed to their people around them. They were religious conformists that wouldn't even think about talking to a Gentile, let alone a lady. That's where this is at. That's the contrast. And now you could not find a more contrasting two stories in one chapter of all the Bible. Right? First, Jesus confronts the hard hearts, the stuffy, uh, uh, the stuffy religious folks, and then he, he and, and it's going to sound strange to hear this because we're going to get into some of these details, then he ends up ministering and healing a Gentile girl. You could not find two more contrasting situations in all the Bible. And he enters into a situation that demonstrates that he could both follow the actual law of Moses without following all these extra traditions that they had imposed. And he enters a situation where hearts, of course, were broken. I want to stop here and say that uh, (laughs) this is particularly hard to say sometimes because I find myself at a loss on how to comfort people that, that might be in the situation this lady's in. But I'm here to say, there's no pain like kid pain. There's no pain, and if you're a parent, you know this is true. That there's no pain like kid pain. When your kids are hurting, man, you're a wreck. When your kids are in trouble, man, you're, you're melted down. You don't, you don't know what to do. When your kids are in, in peril or in danger, when their lives are on the line, it's like, man, we're just on our knees. Like, God, you know, intervene, please. We've walked through that. We've walked through that as a family. But you feel in these difficult times, you feel the weight and the, and the agony of kid pain. And there's no pain like kid pain. And so this lady's desperate. This lady's willing to do whatever it takes. In contrast to the Pharisees, who needed to be confronted for their self-righteousness. This lady needed comforted in her hour of pain. See, you have kind of three these groups, these, the Pharisees that were confronted, the disciples who in the storyline are a little bit confused. And in the midst of all of that that's going on, we've, we see this beautiful story of this lady. We find faith and confidence coming from a Gentile woman. A Gentile mom that's just simply seeking Jesus for an answer. It's, a, it's an amazing story. And many people get hung up on Jesus' response to her. Look there, uh, actually I'll be in Matthew here. Matthew 15, 21 through 27 is kind of where we'll camp for a second. And, and she comes to him and, and is, is, is crying out to him and following the crowd. And verse 23 just like pops off the page because... It says, but he answered her not a word. And I'm thinking, I keep reading this through this week. I'm like, what? Why won't you say anything? Like, that's, that's what's going in my mind. Like, he didn't say nothing to her. And she's calling out, and she's, you know, Lord, son of David, my daughter, severely demon-possessed, Matthew says. And he answers not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away. I'm still in Matthew. Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the 
lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. You notice the kind of the, the perspective difference between Matthew and Mark and all of this as I read it. Verse 27, and she said, yes, Lord, uh, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. At first glance, Jesus' response to her seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I, 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 I can't help but think it's like, Man, why, why such just like, it, it just seems cold. And why does he seem so cold? And what do you do when God seems so cold? What do you do when God seems like that's just there's a no answer? When your prayers seem like they hit a ceiling and there's just no word like this lady had, like her experience. Nothing happens. But was it really that cold? Was he really that distant? He has three responses. Actually, he has four, if you count his final words. But the first three responses that Jesus gives her is, one is silence. He didn't say a word. That's verse 23 in Matthew. His second response in verse 24 is a statement of purpose. And he's not responding to her as much as he's responding to his disciples that are kind of like, why is this lady even following us? Send her out of here so we can keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. So they were confused. They were a little blinded to what's going on. And he gives them the message of purpose, not necessarily her. And his mission was that in the, in the context of the Jewish people that that's why he had come. And his third response was then really, I think, the essence of why this kind of lingered on. It was a statement of testing. It was a statement of testing. Jesus was measuring this situation out. And I would propose that his silence and statements really were not punitive. The way that that he had responded was not punitive, but it was purposeful. I believe that everything that happened here had a purpose. There was a sense of timing to it all. There was a purpose to it all. And Jesus wanted to know if this lady was really broken, really contrite, and really turning to him. And I will say that I think that in the quietness that you hear from God, or that the quietness that you may receive from God in a time of need, that if there's, if there's nothing there, that doesn't mean that he's not there. That doesn't mean that he's not listening That just means that he has a bigger purpose and a plan for what's going on. And let's be honest, folks. This is where a lot of people fall off the rails in their faith. Something bad happens. They go to God. They they, they don't really hear anything or they they really don't have a sense of direction or no response or no nothing. And they're like, fine, yeah, I tried it. Or they show up at church one time. And this has happened many times. Many times. People will show up at church uh, a time or two thinking that there'll be something magical or mystical that'll happen here that'll save them, save their marriage, help their family. They don't get what they want on those two or three weeks, and they're like, yeah, we tried church, it didn't work. Well, it's not like you're buying a car. You don't take it for a test drive and say, well, I don't like where the buttons are at, and the knobs are kind of funky, and the steering wheel's square instead of round, and eh, it's not my type, I'm out. That's not the way that Christianity works. That's not the way that God works. 
And we have to come to realize, especially for the day and the age that we live in, that when God is silent, it's not a reason to bail. It's not a reason to walk away. It's not a reason to give up. That God is purposeful, even in the silence. And I believe that what was going on here was Jesus was wanting to know, are you really real? Are you really that desperate? Are you really looking for more than just a solution for your daughter? Are you really looking for something that will change your life? That will take your broken life, throw it away, and start fresh in me? That would be a little bit more of what the Apostle Paul would be preaching. His silence was purposeful. He wanted to know if she was really turning to him or if she was like the people in the meadows from previous chapters who just wanted a meal. Now, we've got your attention. Let's examine really what she had to say out of the Gospel of Matthew. And I want you to really hone in on her comments I want you to really hone in on her heart's cry. She says, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have That was her, right out of the gate, that's her first statement. She's, she's trying to catch up with Jesus. She decided to, to, let's try this Jewish rabbi. I'm not even Jewish. Let's go find this guy. Forget about where everybody else goes for healing. Eshman doesn't work in reality. He's a fake God. Let's find this real guy. And her first words are, Lord, have mercy on me. You know, do we know what mercy is? Mercy's not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy's not getting what we deserve. And those are her first words. That's her first thought. That's her first cry out to Jesus. Is, is Lord, I, I, I know I deserve something else. Help me, please. I don't want it. I'm crying out for mercy. And she says, Lord, son of David. Lord, son of David. Man, alive. The Pharisees that he'd just been dealing with, they should have had this locked down tight. These guys knew every Old Testament prophecy by memory. They could quote it. They knew everything that the, that the Old Testament had to say about the coming uh, Messiah that he would come from the lineage of David. This lady, a Gentile lady, she locks it down, boom, in her second statement. She says, son of David. She was proclaiming that he was the Messiah. She was proclaiming that he was the chosen one of Israel. She wasn't even Jewish. Her theology was already shot past these other guys. And she says, my daughter severely... Excuse me. She's severely demon-possessed. And in that statement, she's acknowledging to Jesus, even though he hadn't said a word, she's acknowledging the enemy's influence in her family. She's acknowledging the enemy's influence and, and, and spot and position and, and that the enemy has authority over her daughter's body. I, I can't fathom as a parent... My kids are all adults. I still can't even think about it. She's acknowledging that, that her family's upside down. 
She's acknowledging that the enemy's had his way, that Satan has had his way, and is the primary influence in their lives. What a statement. Then she comes, a little later she comes and she just, after Jesus' response, and she just worships him, it says. She worships him. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me, straightforward. It's a surrender and a cry for help. And it's acknowledgement that only Jesus can actually bring the help that's needed. What a wonderful example for us to follow. What a wonderful example as, as you share with your non-believing friends, as you, as you evangelize the people and, and share your story, that, that these principles can just be incorporated right into that story. Because like, how do you become a believer if you never come to this point in life and reality and come to the understanding that, that you're helpless, that I'm helpless? It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because you can't get there without the acknowledgement of the sin in your life. And so, same is true for me. Her last statement there is, is in response to his statement about the crumbs and feeding the children rather than the dogs. There's a lot of focus on this part of it. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall at their master's table. Now, there's a lot to be said about that from the standpoint that in the Jewish culture, they, they viewed Gentiles, they, they called them straightforwardly dogs, those dogs, blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> there's a little different uh, take and phrase there where, where he both uses the phrase little dogs and so does she. And why I s- say that that's important because it's not the typical view of the first century of Gentiles. The connotation there, little dogs, and I'm no master in Greek and Aramaic, but the phrase there, little dogs, that Jesus uses is actually a term of affection. It's not, a derog- it's not the derogatory statement that's normally used. But she says, yes, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Why is this so important? It's really kind of the last answer to the test, her testing him, or him testing her, excuse me. And what that statement is, it's a declaration that with Jesus, even the scraps from his table are infinitely better than what the world has to offer. That's what she was saying. That's what he wanted to know is the smallest part of what Jesus would have to offer becomes infinitely greater than everything the world has to offer. And that's a, that's a principle that must be true in the life of a believer. I'll just say that. That's a perspective that we have to get our, our head around here in the century and the times and the days that we live in because there is everything out there for us to enjoy. And you can get it all at the touch of a button, and a device that's no bigger than my hand. I get it, I have kind of big hands, so if it's like a pro size or plus size, whatever. A little bit of humor inserted, somebody can laugh, that's all right. That's about as funny as I get, so. Back to the point, 
she was the one that was declaring that. So it's her understanding. It's her mindset of what's going on. It's her coming to grips that she is so desperate for her daughter's deliverance that she starts to understand who this guy is, where he is. I'm going to chase him down. I'm going to not give up. I'm going to keep calling out to him. I'm going to keep searching him. I don't care what other people say. I don't care about the people down the street. I don't care about my sister friends who want me to go worship with Eshman. I'm going to forsake all of that, and I'm going to go get the very least that this guy has to offer because it's way better than everything else. Amen? What a declaration. What an example. I probably didn't even highlight the fact that Jewish men of that day didn't even treat their own, <laughs> their own ladies really all that great. And here now he's going to essentially reach out and meet this need. It's a phenomenal story. And Jesus' response then is in concert with the greatness of what's going on in the moment. He says in Matthew 15, 28, Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. This lady didn't have any background, any idea of all of Judaism. He says, great is your faith. Let it be as you desire. And your daughter was healed from that very hour. What lessons does this lady teach us? I mean, it's kind of endless. It's kind of a rhetorical question in a way. But we need to see the power of God coming really as we are. That's her story. We need to see the power of God coming as we are and letting Him make true His promises to those that are weak or unclean. I say that with quotes. Her humble, faith-filled submission to Jesus ended up in victory. Henry Ironside, the theologian, says this, nothing appealed to our blessed Lord more than faith coupled with humility. I think it's a beautiful quote as read through his commentary on this particular passage. And Mark, back to Mark chapter 7, verse 30, it says, And when she had come home to her house, she found the demon had gone out and her daughter lying in bed. There's a whole other kind of a parallel take on all of this <clears throat> that really is uh, the essence behind it all, is that it's a great example, actually, of intercessory prayer. This lady is a great example of intercessory prayer. And some of the things that kind of mark her approach is, is that uh, she's kind of shortened to the point. She comes humbly. She comes in faith. She's fervent. She's modest. She's respectful. She's rational, which I'll pause and say that a lot of times one of the number one temptation that we're in these desperate crisis modes is people lose their rationality. They become irrational. You don't think that's true. Take a 
look at somebody the next time they're in shock. And uh, you'll see all kinds of ra irrationality going on. She was relying only on the mercy of God. And she persevered. She persevered in her endeavor on behalf of her daughter. So she was really interceding, seeking Jesus on behalf of another. And Jesus comforts those then that come earnestly and humbly seeking him. That's the essence of the first part. And it's also the essence of the second part of this chapter. The second miracle is actually just as interesting, but for different reasons. In Mark uh, <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 31 through 37 states that Jesus then left the area of Tyre and Sidon and came to the region of Decapolis. And so he kind of went in a sense, uh, uh, if my geography's right, I'll do it backwards for your guys' sake. He kind of went from like Tyre and Sidon being over here on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of wrapping around uh, and dropping south this this area of Decapolis, Deca meaning ten, uh, Polis meaning city. So there was ten communities, ten cities there uh, that uh, Jesus and his followers went to. And remember this, that uh, <clears throat> the last time that Jesus was in this area, Mark chapter 5, that he had healed the man with the many demons, with the, the legion, they called themselves, and sent him to his homeland to declare what God had done for him. Remember this back in Mark chapter 5. This guy wanted to, once he was healed, he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to go with him. And, and Jesus says, no, sorry, you go back to your people. And Jesus says, your friends, if you can imagine. Like, this guy was, a, this guy was the guy that lived in the tombs. He lived in the graveyard. He was amongst the dead bodies in this area. He, he was the outcast from society. He was the one that, that the townspeople tried to just, just uh, handcuff and bind up because he was so violent and so erratic because he was demon-possessed. This guy was a, he was a social issue, we could put it that way. He had problems, lots of them. And it's interesting that after he's, a little biblical humor after Jesus healed him there in Mark 5 that Jesus says you go back to your friends <laughs> and we joked about this after that particular sermon uh, I wonder how many friends he had you know uh, anybody here live in the gra local graveyard don't raise your hand it's just a funny question not many there's not many here that pitch a tent you know down in Pioneer Cemetery those that potentially do, I don't think, have a lot of friends. That being said, this guy went back to his friends, his people, and declared the goodness of God and the miraculous healing that Jesus had provided for him. Here, now in Mark chapter 7, Jesus comes through this largely Gentile populated area to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, as I mentioned, and Verse 32, it says, Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put a hand on him. Another excellent example of intercession. The friends of this troubled man came and brought his need to Jesus. As Christians, as Christ followers, 
This is an excellent example for us to follow. Are we bringing the needs of our brothers and sisters to the Lord? Are, are, we, are we encouraging them to, to seek help and to come to the Lord in their hour of need? Are we coming alongside? That's is really a beautiful picture of people coming alongside a guy who couldn't speak and couldn't hear and saying, hey, let's, let's go to the Lord. Let's look for help. Again, this is not really a, a Jewish area of Israel. And they begged Jesus to lay hands on him. But no one could have ever foreseen what would happen next. I was wondering whether we should do a live demonstration of this verse. I was wondering if somebody wanted to come up. Emma's got that smirky smile. You come on up, Emmett. I'm going to put my fingers in your ear and spit them, touch your tongue. That ain't right, is it? Who wants to see a live demonstration? I'm kind of tempted this way, actually, in the moment. I won't put anybody through the embarrassment. I make a little bit of light of it, not because... (laughs) I'm not mocking the Bible. I think it's an awesome example, actually. And here's why I think that. Uh, Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus used many different ways of healing people. Many contrasting ways of healing people. He healed people with a word, and he healed people without a word. He healed in response to a person's faith, and he healed in response to the faith of another. He healed those who ask, and he healed those... That, that those that asked, those that came to him, and he healed those that he approached. And why I think that is so, you know, I, I think that this is a little bit of divine humor, personally, this, this methodology. And because what I think that is being communicated here kind of uh, subvertly is, is that there's no pattern to God's healing. He's not bound by a way, by a, by a method, and I think a lot of times we get, as, as uh, a society, we get kind of locked into these methods. Well, everybody that needs healing, you know, line up in this thing and, and I'll come and, you know, put my hand on your forehead and if you fall over backwards on the floor, you're healed. If you don't, sorry, you're out. That's not going to happen here, by the way. That's just like a stupid example. But a lot of people, a lot of places get locked into these methods. And I think that the simple reality is is that there are no methods with God. That He can choose to do whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, or nothing at all, and it's still His will. And so He can stick, you know, tickle His earlobes, spit on His tongue. He can do all of that, and it be God's will. And, And obviously we read the story earlier, so we know that it was God's will. And this guy was healed. But there's no pattern to it. There's no pattern to it. Jesus didn't want to be tied down with any one method, quote unquote, to show that his power was not dependent on any other method, but rather that it was dependent on the sovereign power of God. That's the point we're trying to get to. That it's the sovereign power of God that heals people. Not a certain approach, 
Not necessarily certain words. Jesus healed without any words at times. Not some method that's out there. Or it's his sovereign will that there is no healing in the case of Elliot, the young fellow that we'd been praying for, the little toddler. And that's his choice. That's his choice. And Mark goes on to say in verse 34, then looking up to heaven, the acknowledgement by Jesus of who's really in charge, he sighed, I highlighted that in my notes, and said to him, Ephipatha, that is, be opened. Warren Wiersbe says the sigh was an inward groan of our Lord's compassionate response to the pain and sorrow of sin that sin has brought into the world. It was also a prayer to the Father on behalf of the handicapped man. It's an interesting take that Warren Wiersbe puts out there when Jesus is... (sighs) When he sighs. Now, parents, (laughs) when you're giving out instructions around the dinner table and you hear (sighs) you're not actually thinking what Jesus is thinking when your kids sigh back at you. Jesus is, (laughs) but you might get there, I guess that was the end of my thought. (laughs) You might get there because Jesus' thoughts perhaps were the fact that that this guy was, that was before him was really representative of all of the sin and the pain and the agony that was really passed down from the Garden of Eden and the fall of Adam and Eve. This guy really was in that moment a representative of all of that. Like this is where it's gotten to. This is where it's gotten to. Or this fella, to no fault of his own, and we'll get into those passages another time, to no fault of his own, couldn't speak and he couldn't hear. And the heaviness that's on the Lord's heart in that moment, to just like, more of the same. More of the same. Yet it was the reason why he came. It was the reason why he showed up in the first place. To put a stop to this put an end to the power of sin in people's lives. The same word here really that's used in connection with prayer, the same word, the the word for side, he side, we really find in two places in the same chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 8 verse 23 says not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, same word, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. A similar thought a few verses later is this, 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, Paul says, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There will be times, if there haven't already been times, and I know for many there's already been lots of times, where you're on your knees in prayer and you just run out of things to say. And all you can do is just sit there and just like, come on, Lord, we need an answer. I, I don't know where to turn. I don't know what direction to go. 
I need some direction. And, and you groan within yourselves because you know in that moment that you're so dependent upon what God's plan is. is and you didn't want to miss it, but you're out of words to say anything about it. And it's just that inward, like, gut-level feeling. We groan within ourselves. And the results of this event really speak for themselves. Without being locked into a pattern, Jesus heals this guy. It says immediately, verse 35 of Mark 7, immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And Jesus comforts those who are hurting. And those that are hurting, the result of those changed lives is an unstoppable force. It's an unstoppable force. Like, if Jesus has changed your life, you should not quit talking about it. You should not stop sharing what God has done. Jesus, the creator of everything that we have ever experienced as humans, everything that we see, everything that we... we, How many times we stand out and just like, man, this is awesome. Luke, back from Hawaii, having the same regrets that I have about leaving and coming home to the cold. Right? And we stand out there just like, we just marvel at just an endless amount of water. Like H2O. Everything that you can experience as a human, Jesus created. He tells these guys to not say anything, and they can't not not say anything. Double negative, right? I'm all goofy on my English again. They don't quit, they keep going. And that's what a changed life does. A changed life doesn't sit around on its hands. It doesn't sit around and not deal with issues in life. It doesn't sit around and just be passive and apathetic towards the realities of of that change. They go out and they start proclaiming the change. They keep sharing the message. They get engaged. They don't sit by. This guy did not sit by. Now he could talk, and now he could hear, and everybody was going to know something about it. That's what happens when Jesus comforts the, the brokenhearted, those that are, that are broken, period. That's, this is the result. It's the result especially when people have suffered. It's a result exactly, especially when people have suffered. The Apostle Paul, and I'm going to, Close with this if the worship team wants to come on up. There's a great passage in the first chapter of the book to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. I really want to read it because I think it really hones in. It really hones in on the heart of the last few verses of chapter 7 of Mark. Because I would just want to read those last couple of verses. Then he commanded them, I'm back in Mark, 
He commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more <coughs> he commanded them, the more widespread they proclaimed it. Would that be sanctified disobedience? Somebody, some of you real scholars helped me out. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He had done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He'd done all things well. The Apostle Paul had this take when it comes to suffering. He says to the Colossians church, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. What? I rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I become a minister according to the stewardship from God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Key verse right coming up. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, it's not just being able to finally speak and hear. It's the fact that this guy's life was changed, this girl's life was changed, this lady's life was changed, and they were becoming this representation. It was Christ in them, in a sense. They had met the Messiah, they had met Jesus, and he had met them, and he had addressed their deepest issues. And now in them is this message that is the hope of glory, and it's the same message that you and I have to pass on to everybody we come in contact with. The hope of glory which is Christ in us. The hope of glory which is Jesus living his life through us to reach people and to minister to people and to demonstrate in our own weakness and our own sufferings how awesome God is. Regardless of how things turn out. Knowing that he's in control. How else can you explain that when somebody loses a child, that they stay in the faith, they stay connected to Christ, they keep growing, they allow God to minister and heal their hearts, they allow God to to build them up, and he, He surrounds them with a group of people, the church, to minister to their needs, and He creates opportunities for them to minister to other people that perhaps are in the same or similar situation. How else can you explain that? That when they hold on and they keep demonstrating that the Christ is in them, which is their, the hope of glory, not just that they're going to survive another day, but that they're going to su- survive forever. Because in Christ we're eternal. In Christ we're saved forever. So we don't have to panic. and We don't have to doubt that God has a good plan. We have to trust, keep believing, keep sharing the good news. Amen? Amen. Let's sing about it. Would you stand with Jonathan and the team?